Look up idiot in the dictionary. You know what you'll find? A picture of me? No! The definition of the word idiot, which you fucking are! Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to I Do Movies Badly, a podcast exploration of my cinematic ignorance. I am your host, Jim Rohner, and despite being an amateur film critic since 2006, I am woefully ignorant of many films, filmmakers, and genres that Consensus has deemed important, and thus I have created this podcast to document my journey into cinematic edification. For listeners who are new to the show, at the top of every month, I'll choose a filmmaker or guest of which I am woefully oblivious and discuss the significance and impact of it with a guest who will recommend me three titles most relevant, which I will then watch and report back on. This month, I'm going to explore some films of the Ealing Comedies, the Ealing Comedies, or Ealing Studios, I guess, and joining me to discuss is a returning favorite to the show, favorite for me, I don't know how you listeners feel, but he's a favorite for me. Um, (laughs) I know there's one listener who doesn't particularly care for me, but that's... (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if he cares for me either, but he keeps chiming into the comments field. But anyway, um, that guest that you just heard is Gavin Mevius of The Mixed Reviews. Hooray, Gavin's back! Yay! Yay! Um, yeah, Gavin, uh, it's been... We were just talking um, <laughs> off mic. <laughs> well, no, I guess it was mic because we're doing this remotely. Anyway, uh, Gavin and I were just talking about how it's been so long since we actually just literally saw each other. It's been almost a year um, yeah, I, I I feel like I I was there for the death of your podcast, and I'm here for the rebirth of your podcast. <laughs> and, and let me tell you, it's real gross to be here for a birth. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, the, I was actually going to say the last time Gavin was here, um, if you were a returning listener, um, the last time Gavin was here was over two years ago um, to talk to me about uh, the Universal Classic Monster movies. That was one of my favorite months, Gavin, and some of my favorite oh, movies good. of this whole of this whole tenure. But if you are um, new to the show and you're like, who is this Gavin character? Gavin, why don't you... Because even last time you were here, Gavin, you were uh, Gavin Mevius of the Midtown Comics podcast. That's true. Um, so now you're Gavin Mevius of the Mixture Views podcast, so why don't you talk a little bit about that first and foremost? Sure. Uh, I co-host a film podcast with my good friend Louie, and what it is is uh, we do, it's a bi-weekly podcast, uh, which means it usually comes out every two weeks, and we take a film, an actor, uh, actress, a director, or a mini-genre, and we sort of give you a history of it, and then we talk about what we think really works and what we think doesn't work so well. Um, you know, we've done, we did a Universal Studios Monsters episode for last Halloween, actually, uh, but, you know, we've also done uh, Robert Redford, um, Michelle Yeoh, uh, Sandra Bullock, you know, we try and be as you know wide a grasp as we can uh with uh who we pick and what subjects we pick um and it's a it's a lot of fun so if you're into film it's a great um it's almost like a great resource because we do do an entire history so the episodes are a little long but they're worth it Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah and if you're listening to this to this episode then long episodes clearly don't deter you because all these guest episodes are at least ninety minutes, and uh, <laughs> I don't. Fun... I don't want to keep you full ninety minutes. I'll do my best to avoid that. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we'll see. We'll see where the spirit takes us, Gavin. You know, we we we're we're young. Well, no, we're <laughs> we're not young, and I don't know if we can consider ourselves virile, but we are enthusiastic. Um, <laughs> I, I believe so. And I've told Gavin this, but listeners, 
Um, Gavin is, if there was an I Do Movies Badly Hall of Fame, or Mount Rushmore, Gavin would be in and or on said monument, because Gavin, uh, his episode introducing me to the films of Juan Kar Wai, which was way back in October of, I think, the, the, well, one of the very first guests that I had on I Do Movies Badly way back in the day, um, that episode is by far the most downloaded episode in my entire catalog. It is still, to this day, outpacing new episodes that I record <laughs> and post, which, um, I, I guess, Gavin, you, you are probably a, a beloved, iconic figure in Asia, is, is all that I can understand of it, so... <laughs> I mean, first of all, I, I would love if that were true. But also, I just think, you know, the popularity of Wong Kar Wai is, uh, you know, he's an incredibly talented filmmaker. And I, I mean, I'm sure people are tuning in more to find out about him than to listen to me prattle on about him. But <laughs> I wonder if Wong Kar Wai has tuned in to listen to you prattle <laughs> on about him. No, probably not. But maybe Christopher Doyle is a long time. <laughs> <from the> time. <laughs> that, that may be true. Um, but... Yeah, so uh, we're all we're all happy to have Gavin back, and I won't hear a word otherwise. Um, so we, <laughs> but we are talking today, tonight, whatever you want to call it. We are focusing this month on uh, Ealing comedies, which I have to be honest. When Gavin suggested it, because I reached out to him and said, "Hey, I want you back on the podcast. What can we possibly talk about?" Sent him a whole bunch of suggestions, <laughs> and then he countered <laughs> with something entirely different. Um, but uh, we were talking about we're talking about the Ealing comedies, and I figured after doing some cursory research, I figured, hey, October was kind of a rough month in regards to general happenings in the world. Um, it was uh, not one of my favorite months in terms of the the filmmaker that I covered. It was Dario Argento, and I figured we need to get back to something a little bit lighthearted, a little bit fun, and I haven't done a genre in a long time on this show, so when Gavin suggested I jumped on board with it, but still, listener, you are probably as oblivious to Ealing comedies as I was. In fact, I thought that it was a typo when Gavin suggested it to me. (laughs) Um, That is not the case. So Gavin, I guess what, this is a very broad question, but what, what are Ealing comedies, because I had to look it up and like, oh, Ealing is a section in in England. Okay, that's interesting. (laughs) Well, uh, before I really get into that, I do want to say that uh, your email was just repeated over and over and over again, the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo movies, and I was like, I'm not going to do that, Jim. Well, I I figured, listen, um, we have... A few different on-screen depictions of Lisbeth Sander now, and I just figured, like, you know, that that's that's rife, and that's that's what this world needs right now. Yeah, it, it really is more than anything. Uh, we need thrillers about tax law, and um, uh, so yeah, just a, just a quick overview of of Ealing, and I I, I want to preface this by saying I am I'm not an expert on Ealing. I'm just a big fan. Mm-hmm. Um, I I know uh, some people took um umbrage with my interpretation of the universal monster movies uh they're probably not going to enjoy my interpretation of the yielding movies either so i just i just want to get that out of the way because it's interesting that you bring up the the fact that the you know the world had um uh you know sort of political dealings in october that uh, or the u.s had political dealings in october that were not uh you know the best and one of the things i've always appreciated about the yelling movies is that they are political um but they're not political in the way that you perhaps sort of think about because they're not radical 
in any uh, way, shape, or form in terms of their politics. But uh, so real quick, uh, Ealing was a studio, a film studio, uh, and they became mostly famous, which is very, very strange for the comedies that they put out between 1947 to 1957, um, which is you know ten years, mm-hmm. which is not huge. It's also a like something like a less than a third of the output of their studio. They were doing a lot of melodramas, a lot of uh, uh, working class pictures. Um, but that's sort of what makes these um, Ealing movies really interesting is that these comedies, these very earnest comedies sort of sprung up out of that uh, um, specific time period. And it's also interesting to think about how people talk about noir was a reaction to World War II, how everything sort of moved towards darkness and cynicism um, in that way. And you got these very um, cynical, you know, sometimes detective, sometimes just dark tales that always had these really unhappy endings. And what Ealing did is it sort of applied that um, anxiety, that post-war anxiety towards comedies. And Mm -hmm. most of these are comedies of manners. And most of them are comedies of, um, you know, the little guy fighting the the bigger, um, the bigger sort of, you know, sometimes it's the government, sometimes it's corporations, and I don't know. You get this this really sort of working class sense in these comedies that it's it's sort of a it's about the unity of of people versus you know tyranny. Um, I I love this quote. Uh, one of the big people to come out of Ealing was a uh, producer Michael Balkin, mm. and he really spearheaded uh, the way that Ealing comedies would be made. Um, and he said, and I quote. If you think about Ealing at those times, we were a bundle. I'm not saying this in any critical sense. We were middle-class people brought up in the middle-class backgrounds and rather conventional educations. Though we were radical in our point of view, we did not want to tear down the institutions. This was before the days of Marxism or Maoism or Levi Strauss or Marcuse. We were people in the immediate post-war generation, and we voted labor for the first time after the war. This was our mild revolution. We had a great affection for British institutions. Comedies were done with affection. And I don't think we would have thought of tearing down institutions unless we had a blueprint for what we wanted to put in their place. Of course, we wanted to improve them, or to use the cliche of today, to look for a more just society in the terms that we knew. The comedies were mild protests, but not protests at anything more sinister than the regimentation of the times. And so that's what I think is really interesting about these Ealing comedies is they're they're these very drawl, sometimes dark, sometimes cynical, <laughs> but very funny uh, comedies about the little guy versus the big institution. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it takes many, many different shapes over the years, but uh, they all sort of have that uh, through line. And I think that's what really makes them special. And unfortunately, the like I mentioned, the studio itself was only really Ealing. For a very short time, the BBC purchased them in 1957, mm-hmm. uh, and then they were purchased back in the 90s, and they, they've been kind of doing their own thing. Lots of sh- shows and movies still shoot there, but mm-hmm. they've never really recaptured an identity. Uh, Downton Abbey famously shot oh. interiors there. Yeah. Oh. So, so, like, they do exist. They have a presence now, but it's not, um, it's not what it once was, you know? Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, I don't know. I I really love these. And you know, this these 
films, I, I actually only discovered Ealing comedies like four or five years ago. Um, but these films are, are really sweet and, and, you know, near and dear to my heart. And they, they launched a lot of careers. Uh, there was a lot of directors who came out of it. Uh, one of the most famous, and actually uh, two of my recommendations are going to be films directed by him. Mm. Uh, Alexander McKendrick, who eventually left Ealing for Hollywood and made oh. one, one of the best noirs of all time, Sweet Smell of Success. Ooh. Um, yeah, exactly. So, like, he is a well-known person. But also, without Ealing, you know, we probably wouldn't have famous careers for Alistair Sim, uh, Alec Guinness especially, and um, Peter Sellers really oh, got his start wow. in, one of, in one of the Ealing films. And, I mean, he had done stuff before, but he has said um, he really felt that uh, The Lady Killers was his first real film. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, so yeah, so like I don't know. It's a it's a really good company and a really interesting company and you you don't see films made in that way anymore. You know, it's it's rare. I I hate to use this analogy, but like maybe Marvel, which has like a point of view. It's not a good point of view or mm -hmm. an interesting point of view, but like they make their films in a very sort of uniform way. Mm -hmm. And Ealing is is like that, but without so much of um, uh, a factory stamp on it. You know that one of the, I was watching an interview earlier with a, one of the Ealing producers. Uh, I don't think it was Michael Balkin, but he was still alive in the '90s, mm -hmm. and he was talking about how one of Ealing's initiatives was to never make anything by committee. It was mm -hmm. like you make you make the thing that you believe in, or you don't make anything at all. Yeah. And uh, it so in that way, it's sort of the opposite of Marvel, <laughs> where it's, <laughs> it's not it's not you know. Uh, 27 people all having to be like what if we did this uh -huh. but it, it, it almost feels like early Pixar because yeah. they had a round table they had seven or eight guys they would sit around a table and they would talk about ideas and they would pick filmmakers and and it, it's got that sort of brand quality to it mm -hmm. well it's interesting too that you how, how you you draw the equivalency to to the modern equivalency to Marvel? I say this having not listened yet to uh, Battleship Retention. One of their most recent episodes is I think entitled like Studios and Their Personalities. Uh, but <laughs> it, it does certainly seem like nowadays uh, what you I mean you can make an argument for Disney and Disney, which owns Pixar and that sort of thing. But it doesn't seem like Universal is necessarily going to differentiate itself from Warner Brothers and that sort of thing. Um, so. At least in terms of historically, as someone who has also recommended me classical horror films, it seems like, and correct me if I'm wrong, Gavin, there's sort of also an equivalency there to Hammer, which was also a studio that made yeah. a, a very specific time of film on horror, horror films, and then the studio itself kind of shut down, but then came back sort of as a brand like a, a few decades later, but just was not the same, really. Right. And what's interesting about that, it's actually a pretty good comparison because Hammer also had a stable of actors. But what's really great is their, a lot of their secondary actors, people that uh, would play minor roles in their film or sometimes secondary leads or even occasionally a lead, came from Ealing. You know, mm. Michael Goff, who eventually went on to play Alfred in the Tim Burton Batman movies, oh, yeah, is an yeah. Ealing person. Oh. Um, and... Um, uh, Herbert Lom, who really ended up getting famous for playing Inspector Dreyfus in the Pink Panther films, he mm -hmm. was Hammer's Phantom of the Opera. Oh, wow. Okay. 
so so you also do get crossover from that um it's just a, it's just an interesting way because it it's similar in a way to to the way hollywood used to run its studio system but hollywood wasn't interest hollywood was just interested in making money and yeah. um <laughs> and and so they weren't you know like trying to sell a point of view or or a style whereas there's a lot of british film companies that you you, you know you sort of look back and find out you know that they had more to offer in terms of the way that they made the films mm. And now, I, so I have a, a few questions, but I'll start with a very simple one. Let's say there's a listener out there who is uh, very tall with a receding hairline, currently drinking a beer, who is saying, hey, Gavin, what is, you described a lot of their comedies as comedies of manners. What, what, are, what are comedy of, of manners? Because that seems like a very sort of specific thing. Or, or like if you watch a comedy of manners, there are going to be certain archetypes or expectations that you have that you're going to um, kind of check off. I, I think comedy of manners, uh, in, in sort of uh, the more modern sense, I think people think of it more as um, almost like uh, parlor mysteries, which is sort of like um, Agatha Christie, where it's a it's a bunch of people in a room and and uh, and sort of uh, who done it. Whereas a comedy of manners would be like a bunch of people in the room, and the comedy would all be based on class mm. you know it'd be like uh is this person as fancy as me or is this person not as fancy of me is this person deserving of my attention mm-hmm. uh because of their breeding and uh, uh comedy of manners has a tendency to to go towards the the heart of that and usually uh what's what's kind of neat about the yielding movies as i mentioned they usually involve working class people mm-hmm. and so you automatically are from the point of view of of the lower class which doesn't always happen in british comedies mm-hmm. uh, especially in that era you know there's a there's a lot of uh films that you really deal with the aristocracy mm-hmm. and ealing was more interested in sort of making fun of that aristocracy or poking fun <laughs> at it without mm-hmm. uh without trying to be like we should dismantle the system and and so i i think the the comedy of manners in in the Ealing films comes more from the fact that you, as an audience, are often given the focal point of a uh, a lower class person who's trying to navigate this world. Sometimes they're doing it incredibly well, and sometimes they're they're literally gathering together their their you know society to take down this upper class world. And I and I like that. Uh, I mean. The, the early Ealing comedies, uh, it really bums me out because uh, apparently not too many of them are available. And I was going to I was going to assign one to you, mm-hmm. uh, which I but uh, so I'll just bring it up now. Uh, one of my f- absolute favorites is uh, Whiskey Galore. And I, I really wish I could ask you to watch Whiskey Galore uh, came out. Um, it was 1949 and it is. Uh, about a town in Scotland that runs out of whiskey, but good fortune happens when a ship shipwrecks off their coast with <laughs> fifty thousand bottles of whiskey. I think it is. That might be too much. Uh, don't quote me on that. Um, and they no, decide. It, oops, sorry, I don't. I don't mean to interrupt you, Gavin. But yeah, according to IMDb, it is fifty thousand cases of yes. whiskey. Um, so they uh, they attempt to salvage this whiskey um to uh you know give to their town 
and the British customs and excise men show up and are like, you can't do that, it's illegal. And it mm. becomes this um, amazing comedy of this family essentially trying to get this whiskey and the British government attempting to stop them from doing so. <laughs> and what's funny is it's not even... Um, it's not even paced the way you would expect it to be. The The shipwreck doesn't occur until 30 minutes into the film. This is an 80-minute movie. <laughs> uh, and so it, it, it takes its own time. It's more interested in letting you really know these people. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's, what's really great about Whiskey Galore, too, is it was, um, I believe it's the first film of Alexander McKendrick. Yeah, it was his debut. And he didn't even think he made that good of a movie because <laughs> he, he was like, I didn't really know what to film or what I was filming. Um, and I think he sort of lays out the 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 template for what the Ealing film is. There's a lot of focus on people just going about their day, mm-hmm. doing their work. There's a lot of focus on non-movie stars. And uh, it, it's really something to behold. It's like watching a, you know, that, that sort of... Um, new hollywood 70s independent film (laughs) that starts in the late 60s uh, but you're watching it 20 25 years before that even occurs Uh, (laughs) so it's just funny when people act like you know like oh this this brand new thing that really challenges the way we make films and it's like no other people were doing that at some point it's just everybody thought they were doing something wrong (laughs) so um, and apparently Whiskey Galore was also remade in 2016. It was, with Eddie Izzard. I have not seen it, and I'm not really interested, even though I love <laughs> Eddie Izzard. I've seen, I've seen Eddie Izzard live four times, so I'm a very much a fan of Eddie Izzard. Oh, wow. Uh, Did you see him when he came through New York most recently, a couple months ago? No, I didn't see him uh, this uh, past time. The first time I saw him was, uh, I want to say, 2003, and then I've seen him three times in New York City. I saw him once at Madison Square Garden and twice, uh, uh, once in uh, uh, like moderate size theater and once in a very small theater where I was very close to him and it was very strange because um, <laughs> I was just like, "Love me, Eddie Izzard." <laughs> but, uh, it, it, it didn't work. It didn't. <laughs> um, I'm sorry, Gavin. It's okay. Um, Way to bring up something painful, Jim. Hey, yeah, I, I, I said I, I said before we started recording that I'm I'm glad always glad to have you on because you're very smart and you always make me feel very dumb. So this is my revenge, you son of yeah. a bitch. <laughs> Why don't you bring up my dead dad? <laughs> oh my god! Oh, That's just... right. I took it dark, just like the healing movies sometimes do. Which wow. brings us back to our topic. <laughs> Um, no, and you, it's, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned how, uh, when it comes to comedy of manners and sort of the focus, uh, it's mostly, it, it's, it tends to be more on sort of the aristocracy and not so much from the working class. And I, I don't know how much you know about, uh, kitchen sink realism, but I wonder how much of that sort of took the steam out of it, because I know that was sort of like a genre that I, I think was around the same time, late fifties, maybe, or late forties, but, uh, I, I say this as not knowing... I know even less about British history as I do cinema, so I, I'm probably talking out of my ass at this point, but I believe kitchen sink realism was a sort of the flip side of this coin, where it was um, working-class British citizens that were 
kind of poor and impoverished and very dramatic. And I believe it was so called because it was like it was it was so real. They filmed everything, including the kitchen sink, kind of a thing. And uh, <laughs> if I have any British listeners, and I've gotten that wrong, I vehemently apologize. Like I said, I don't know much about this sort of thing, but I do wonder if there was sort of that element of it because. I don't know. It, it, it does kind of bug me sometimes how the the really stark dramas are the ones that history remembers, and like the good comedies are kind of like, eh, well, that was fun. And then you, d- like- you know what's really funny about that, and and uh, I mean the, the Ealing comedies are definitely considered part of that genre because of the way that they deal with their subjects, except that they're not about the dr- their dramatic half of that. Oh, really? But uh, one of the most famous uh, kitchen sink realism films. Is also is from 1947 called "It Always Rains on a Sunday," mm-hmm. and it's an Ealing Studios film. Interesting. Yeah. Oh. So that's that should give you an idea of the of the normal output of of what Ealing was doing and why their their comedies also have that element in it. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. And so now, so 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 Ealing didn't start as a as a com- was it one of those things that once the comedy started getting pulled out they kind of shifted focus or was it like they were still always doing everything else but it just sort of like we're choosing to focus on the comedies at this point I I think um it it they I mean they really just stayed doing everything else and like I said the the comedies are less than a third of their output over over the 10 years that they were actively doing comedies they put out 17 comedies mm-hmm. or Somewhere around there, 16, 17. Okay. But people have a tendency to remember them because they were revolutionary. Because comedies have a have a tendency to be a, a lavish affair, especially British comedies. Um, they were, you know, seemingly big and high budget. And, uh, and, and these were not that. They were, you know, personal and, and silly, but, um, but also really smart. I don't know. They, they were so different from from what you were getting in terms of British comedy at the time, and part of that is that that kitchen sink realism influence that that really you know grounded the characters and and made everybody relatable to the audience. You know, I go back to that quote I, men- I mentioned, and the thing that really sticks out to me is he says, you know, these were people that came back from the war and they voted Labour for the first time. Mm-hmm. So you know, they they were. Uh, people that were really connected to the working class and 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 to the downtrodden, and they, you know, they really wanted to stick it to the system in some way, shape, or form. But once again, there was no plan. You know, it wasn't like they were uh, inciting anarchy with their comedies, but they wanted to point out the absurdities of the ruling class. Mm-hmm. And it is really interesting to me that. <laughs> We do have these two different countries that have these two different responses to the same, like, traumatic world universe shifting event in World War Two, whereas uh, the 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 British who were hammered just with, in terms of like literally and figuratively and all this kind of thing, kind of like we, they have this response of like we're gonna we're gonna make these fun comedies. And the right. U.S. who kind of joined the war effort later and were kind of, you know, woke the sleeping giant, this giant world power, and, and then they, you know, uh, they come back and like, well, we're going to inherit this darkness. We're going to take this on. We're going to make film noir. And it, it's this I weird mean, thing. And, and that's not to say Britain didn't have its fair share of film noir. Well, sure. Uh, but, like, the, but yeah, that these were birthed out of that t- that same time period is such an interesting microcosm. 
Uh, I think the other weird thing is, too, is almost all of the Ealing films were censored in America uh, due to the Hayes Code because Mm -hmm. they often are about crime Mm -hmm. in some way, shape, or form. Some of them are about murder. Um, And so oftentimes for an Ealing film to get released in America, they would shoot new endings to them in America and add them to them. One of my favorites is actually Whiskey Galore, where they added a, a text thing saying that, you know, that the alcohol didn't bring joy to any of the <laughs> islanders' life once they had it. And it's like, that's such a weird thing. Also, um, it couldn't be called Whiskey Galore in America uh, because at the time there was a ban on um, on using alcohol names in a title, so it had to be called Tight Little Island, which is the name of the book it's based on. Oh, wow. Yeah, and it, it's all these interesting things that you, you forget that um, America was, uh, you know, has this very puritanical streak that runs through <laughs> it uh, that, that Britain certainly had, uh, but loosened a lot faster in England than it, right. than it has here. And, and that's that's a whole other conversation because it's it, certain things that we censored and yet at the same time uh, Britain had the video nasties uh, and we right. didn't really have that sort of, or maybe we did, but I, I don't think we had that sort of equivalency here as much as just, ah, no, we'll, we'll let people get slaughtered, but you can't talk about sex. That's horrible. Right, um, right, absolutely. And also that ending title is false because, of course, alcohol coming to the island would bring plenty of joy. <laughs> I mean, they they were Scottish, <laughs> so that's <laughs> it's 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 funny. The uh, I I can't remember who was the director or the writer who said about whiskey galore. In the end, uh, he felt that the the British antagonist, uh, which is the character Eddie Izzard plays in the remake, ended up feeling the most authentically Scottish because he was so stalwart in his ideas of the way things should be done, and the rest of the islanders are much more Irish. Than... <laughs> <laughs> and I just thought that was a very funny, funny thing. That's pretty good. Um, so, uh, now, it, it, it comes down... Well, not it comes down to... I don't know where, where I was going with that thought, so I'm going to get to the thought that I was trying to think. Um, when it When it comes to... Uh, a genre, specifically a genre that kind of comes from a, a, a studio. Uh, you mentioned the equivalency of Marvel, and one of the criticisms that people sort of have against Marvel is like, well, there really isn't room for a director voice or an authorial voice because it's sort of like we have to toe the company line, for lack of a, of a better analogy. But So when it comes to the Ealing stuff, is it is there... Yeah, I guess it's sort of like, yeah, how can how can one Ealing comedy sort of differentiate itself from the next, basically? I I think, yeah, I think what what it is is that uh, Ealing comedies are spiritually connected. They all feel like they could occur sort of in the same... I mean, maybe not... I mean, I guess I, I, not everything has to be universe, but I guess yeah. in the same universe or exist in the same headspace but they are very different films uh whiskey galore is you know about an isolated community um uh, you know the uh, kind hearts and cornets is is very much about uh england itself um uh, the man in the white suit is a science fiction film but hmm. it's it's really the concepts that they're 
they're dealing with this this sort of um, uh, every man aspect to to an uh, an unjust society that that's really what makes them their own thing so it's it's not really like in terms of comparing it to something like marvel then it, it's not really like mm. oh what quirky situation can we put ant-man in this time <laughs> it's it's taking the concept of starting with it with the every man um, or every woman and and putting them in a situation where they really sort of have to confront the uh un- unfortunate reality that they're in mm-hmm. be it you know an an overbearing government that's not being fair or a system that's been keeping them down or uh you know even a, a way of manners that perhaps is not the the actual way in which we should be behaving mm-hmm. and when you when you were sort of initially sort of describing these things i my it's funny because my gut like knee-jerk reaction was sort of well, if they're not interested in, in tearing down these structures and these systems and, like, what's even what's even sort of the point? It, it kind of seems like it, this is an exercise in futility. But then I, I sort of started thinking about it more, and it's like, well, you see a really serious, let's call it a, a gritty drama, which sort of talks about, like, addresses these, these sort of larger political or social issues and is sort of like, yeah, we have to tear it down. And it's like, yeah, man, I relate to that, and that's awesome, but I'm fucking depressed now. Um <laughs> And that idea of sort of the the laughter and the humor and just sort of having this cathartic reaction can be so refreshing and therapeutic and and so the more I thought about it, the more I'm like no this is this this might just be exactly what I think we need at this point we of right. course this well, podcast represents the entire nation of course there's a um there was a bit of a, a, a BFI documentary that I watched on Ealing recently too. I, I did my homework. I tried to at least. And, uh, and the commentator was talking about how like one of the, the, the great things about Ealing, what makes them resonate so much is um, as a society, we are always sort of um, on a preface. A, a, we're precipice. always a precipice. Thank you. We're always on a precipice of, of, are we going to go forward or are we going to move backwards? And one of the things that Ealing comedies do so well is they remind you of, of a world that is, you know, right there in terms of, you know, welfare and uh, helping people out. And, and it's one of those things that makes you wonder, do we want to regress to prior to that? Mm-hmm. Or do we want to move forward in a way that is a, a more progressive uh, sort of political stance? And that's and that's what's sort of interesting uh, about them is they they all sort of regardless of the means of the characters. Because let me tell you, I'm we're gonna get to talk to some about some bad character <laughs> in, a, in a moment. Uh, but do we want to? find a way that that pushes us forward or you know are we more interested in sliding backwards and i feel like a lot of the Ealing movies are are really struggling with that but in a comedic way and like you said you know sometimes it does feel futile when it's like well if you're not interested in tearing the system down what good are you but i think there is something to be said about gently poking holes in the system that maybe make people think about um ways that they could improve things um, I'm not saying that's the best way to go about everything, mm-hmm. but I think at the time, especially in a post-war nation, it was probably uh, a a much more gentle push 
that what people needed than you know screaming in their face uh you should be better <laughs> yeah and and i think there's there also is something not only just therapeutic about laughter but it, there's also that that sense of like if you're laughing at someone at something having that cathartic moment and someone else is laughing at something having that cathartic moment you're you're automatically sort of connected to each other in that sort of thing um right. and i guess it is a little bit too pretentious or ambitious to kind of assume that every film has to do this i mean i I don't think that charlie chaplin when he made the great dictator was like oh this is gonna take down hitler that's not right what was going to happen um that's not what happened right it wasn't the great dictator that that won world war ii is is that right that's no i actually believe uh i believe it was yeah okay no no, wait sorry they flew over berlin and just dropped cop film rolls of yeah film canisters the great dictator and they were like wow we should lose you mean remastered Blu-rays, Jim? Of course. <laughs> no, no, no. HD DVDs, Gavin. Yes, HD DVDs. <laughs> you and I can't see 4K. Anyways. <laughs> oh man, don't even get me started on that. But um, there was something. Else. Oh, I, I should have asked this one earlier because I always, I, I typically like to start with this. But I guess a personal anecdote from you, Gavin. I mean, what was what was sort of like your first exposure to healing? What was it that you saw the first time? Like, oh, this is really cool. And they're just sort of connected to it. So my my first exposure, actually, uh, I didn't even realize that these were a, a subgenre of films released mm. by a company. Um, years ago, when I was like 14 or 15, I saw the original Lady Killers. Oh, um, yeah. On, yeah, on Turner Classic Movies. And... Um, and it, it was so good. And part of that is Alec Guinness is so charming. Mm-hmm. Um, even playing this sort of gross weirdo that is the professor. Um, <laughs> and uh, and I don't know. I, I just found it really compelling that it was the, this weird movie about these criminals that uh, are bad, but it also wants you to like them. And also this old woman who is uh, like... You're you're asked to to kind of not love her, but also to be sympathetic with her position in life, because she's she's this old woman who's kind of bored and lonely, and she you know she's constantly telling the police about stuff. She's she's the woman who cries wolf, you know. So when something bad actually does happen, the police don't believe her. Um, and I don't know. I, I found this this innately charming film uh, that was very polite and and silly and uh yeah and i just really liked it and then the coen brothers remade it and Mm -hmm. and i think got everything wrong about it just (laughs) everywhere that the the um the you know that movie takes a a left turn the coen brothers took a right turn and i kind of do mean that politically i don't think people realize uh, I think people have only come to realize recently the Coen brothers are a little bit more conservative than they think they are. Oh. And uh, and I think uh, an Ealing comedy is a very weird choice for the Coen brothers to remake because, uh, I, I don't know, it's it's a, a little too radical for them, in, in my opinion. Um, <laughs> but I don't think I'm saying anything that anybody really disagrees with because everybody knows the Coen Brothers Lady Killers is a disaster. I'm not exactly kicking a horse when it's down because it's already been buried. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that's but, the, when people talk about the Coen Brothers misfires, uh, Lady Killers is, I, I'd say, basically the first one that everybody mentions. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, and it's fu- it's funny, too, because I, I think people have... Um, you know, they've even reassessed the intolerable cruelty. 
but nobody mm-hmm. really has ever gone to bat for uh, Lady Killers. I, I forget so. that they made that one. I, I for some reason I always uh, like uh, assume that that one was a Clooney, like a George Clooney oh, written directed movie. Huh. That's them. Um, but uh, and then really it wasn't till I want to say like 2014, so maybe four years ago, five years ago, mm-hmm. um, that I I saw my next dealing film, which is this little film called Passport to Pimlico, uh, which I also highly recommend. Um, and it's a film that came out the same year as Whiskey Galore, 1949, mm-hmm. and it it's about um, uh, a town that discovers a town in England that discovers technically um, they are not subject to England's rule. And they decide that their town was left uh, to be independent Um, and they secede from England and England decides that they can't have that. So they essentially cut them off and the town starts relying on um, the, the kindness of Englanders, like they're surrounded by the army, and and people from England are like throwing food over the barrier to them. <laughs> it's really great and a very funny movie, and probably their most political movie, I would say. Um, and and I don't know, it's just it's just a really delightful film, and and very silly, but also very truthful. Um, because <laughs> I I do think if if you know there's constantly people you know claiming this state's going to secede or this other state's going to secede and it's like i don't i don't know if it would be as easy as you think it would be and also mm-hmm. you forget the governing body you're from is really spiteful <laughs> so. <laughs> um a little a little fun uh history lesson now that so the lady killers was nominated for an oscar back in 1957 for best writing best screenplay original i don't i don't know how differentiates because back then there was best writing adapted best writing original and best writing motion picture story um i don't know what the what the difference is but um, i don't really know either i'll be honest yeah but the lady killers um did not win it lost to the red balloon which was the only only time that a a short film won best writing really yeah um it was also up against la strada the brave and the bold and a film called julie that i've never heard of before but well, um, you know what's really funny? Uh, so 1949, it's, as I mentioned twice now, mm-hmm. uh, two of their big... There actually was a third film of theirs that came out in 49 called uh, Kind Hearts and Coronets. They had three major films that occur. All three were nominated for Best Picture at the BFI Awards. <laughs> or, mm-hmm. And all three lost to... Uh, <laughs> um, uh, oh, why can't I think of the name of it? Um, the Third Man. Oh, so, uh, okay. Yeah, so it's it's really interesting that they they have this uh, history, you know, this the thing that sort of made them famous th- three years on into their into their run, mm-hmm. um, and they they still couldn't really garner the respect. Though I I think when you have three films from the same studio, especially three similar films in terms of tone, uh, of course they're going to split the vote. But mm-hmm. also, the third man's an amazing movie, so yeah. <laughs> it's really hard to get mad at that. You know, it's like, well, if you're gonna lose, lose to the best, I guess. Yeah, there's there's also that minor insignificant fact that the third man is also a, a fantastic film. But yeah, um, was a uh, were any were Ealing comedies ever could any of them be described as slapsticky or was that sort of kind of below 
British sensibilities. No, I mean, it's definitely not below, and there's definitely elements of slapstick. I mean, some of them are very physical. One of my favorite things about reading about Ealing films is reading about all the times that they almost killed Alec Guinness. <laughs> um, and, and I... I so there is a physical element to it, and I, I don't want to to make it sound like there isn't, and that's definitely um, one of the things. And I also don't want to make it sound like they're not absurd. These films are absurd, mm-hmm. uh, but it's 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 such a combination of things. It's the physicality, it's the way the language is used, especially in Kind Hearts and Coronets, mm-hmm. and the way that um, and the the way that they they deal with a reality that's both very real and just an absurd situation. It's not every day that you know a town decides to secede from a country or that uh, you know an island runs out of whiskey and just happens to have the good fortune that you know a a, um, a ship crashes off. Uh, there's a uh, there's another film from 1951 called The Lavender Hill Mob. And, you know, it's about uh, a bunch of working class people who decide to rob a bank of gold bullion. And then, you know, everything goes terribly for them when they decide to to melt it down and, and shape it into mini Eiffel Towers. But it's really funny because <laughs> the, the, you, in, in most movies, the thing that would be the, the stress would be the crime itself would be right. uh you know stealing but really it's everything that happens afterwards in that film mm-hmm. um and and so like i i think it's this you know this absurd nature combined with this political message and and as you mentioned the, the slapstick as well alec guinness is incredibly physical in almost all of his roles uh, as i mentioned before uh many times they they tried to kill him um one, <laughs> one of my favorite things is uh the uh, he does this uh, amazing escape down the side of a building in the film The Man with the White Suit and they had him only being held up with piano wire mm-hmm. and he was told that piano wire was so strong that it it couldn't possibly break unless kinked um, <laughs> and he believed them um, <laughs> number one, piano wire is very thin and dangerous and two um, it holding up a human it doesn't matter how strong your substance is. And so four feet from the ground, it broke. And uh, <laughs> luckily he was it's fine. There's another great moment in Kind Hearts and Coronets where he plays a sea captain and he mm. goes down with ship. Um, and it's this amazingly shot sequence. Um, and they strapped him to a board and lowered him underwater and <laughs> left him there. They started to pack up the day. It was four minutes before they realized he was still under there. Someone dived into the water and un, un, like cut the wires. And luckily, just luckily, he happened to be an early practitioner of yoga and supposedly could hold his breath for four minutes. So, <laughs> oh my god, yeah. That... With that, I, there's a there was a very real possibility that there's a universe out there in which Alec Guinness didn't play Obi-Wan Kenobi because the <laughs> Ealing comedies killed him. <laughs> and that is, um, that, that adds a whole new context or, or emotion behind, uh, the, the cover photo that I put on the ID movies, badly Facebook page is, a, is that moment when Alec Guinness is being lowered into the water from, yes. from kind of Cornets. And so I, I can't look at my Facebook page the same way again. Um, and I mean, is, if, if, 
I mean, I'm sure right before that occurred, he did warn the Ealing Studios that if they struck him down, he would become more powerful than they could ever imagine. <laughs> I imagine that was on his mind. Well, and, and it's it's funny, too, that you... Because <clears throat> one of the, the things that you had said to me when we were talking uh, back and forth uh, trying to set up this episode was that uh, one of the draws of Ealing comedies was like he wouldn't have Alec Guinness if not for Ealing. And it was weird at the time when I kind of thought like, Thinking back on the stuff I've seen Alec Guinness is, I mean, you just mentioned Star Wars, but Bridge of the River Kwai and uh, Lawrence of Arabia, and like, oh, really, this serious, dramatic actor coming into comedies? <laughs> uh, but then I, I think back, too, I mean, I, I've talked on this on this podcast numerous times, I'm a huge fan of Billy Wilder, and Billy Wilder was a big proponent of a great uh, comedic actor can do drama, but a great dramatic actor cannot necessarily do comedy, um, which, right. tying everything uh, uh, back into this... Um, circuitous manner in which I talk, I suppose. That's why some people were saying that the Russo brothers were actually a great choice to direct some of the Marvel films because um, they do comedy very well, so of course they're going to be able to do uh, drama films very well uh, also. So Yeah, th- thank God those pictures are, are beautiful to look at. <laughs> real, real points of view there in terms of filmmaking. <laughs> I think... Um, I, I'm I'm guessing Gavin is is not the the biggest fan of, of Marvel films, and that's okay. Uh, I uh, I actually don't mind them, and uh, I think that I I still stand by. Uh, I think they did some really interesting um, things in uh, Civil War, but I don't think that they. I I'll be perfectly honest. I don't think their their next two films uh, ha- were much to look at, which is really unfortunate when you have that playground. But yeah, that's 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 fair, but. Um... I'm trying to think, Gavin. I, I don't. I don't know if I have um, really any other questions. I think we got we got a good background and, and groundwork going here. And normally, this would be the part of the podcast where I sort of do that. Okay, we've been talking about this filmmaker. So, what film would you really like to see this filmmaker do? But we are not talking about a filmmaker. So, I'm going to improvise and wing it a little bit here. Let's say, how can I update that question and conversation to a genre? I suppose. I guess if there was. If you could think of uh, of sort of a, a contemporary comedy, which is sort of made in the spirit of an Ealing uh, Studios comedy, what would come to mind well, if you could if you could think I, of anything? I mean, that that is genuinely an interesting question. And as soon as you start formulating it, I was like, oh fuck. Um, <laughs> but uh, it, I mean, it's it's interesting in the fact that like I think there's lots of people who try and do it in different ways and have come uh, off in varying varying degrees of success. Um, uh, and like I, I definitely don't think the the Apatow style of comedy is very similar. But the fact that he is often you know focusing on the everyman in a way that you know perhaps some of the uh, these other broader comedies are are perhaps not though oftentimes his every man isn't fighting against the system they're fighting yeah. against their own failures mm-hmm. um but i don't know i think that they, there's something to be said about that but i i'm i'm not even sure there there's not a lot of movies that are like mm-hmm. the ealing comedies that okay. that have that sort of uh, um i'm gonna i'm gonna about. To- i'm gonna toss one out to you gavin tell me what you think okay Hot fuzz. Hot fuzz is yeah. That's that actually. I mean, and I wouldn't be surprised if Edgar Wright is a huge Ealing fan. I'll be mm-hmm. perfectly honest. Um, 
Yeah, that that actually really sort of works in a way. And actually, uh, as much as I I didn't care for it in terms of the trilogy, um, what is the third one called again? Uh, World's End. Uh, World, yeah, yeah, World's End is in a way more similar to that than that I would say Shaun of the Dead. Shaun of the Dead sort of the outlier if you were to compare them to Elin comedies, but these are movies about everyday people that are sort of fighting a system. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I guess World's End sort of falls more into the the like the main character is fighting his own flaws, but um, the yeah Hot Fuzz is a is a really good example because it has both that. Uh, really funny wordplay often the really physical stuff that occurs and it's it's about a man fighting a system Mm -hmm. in a small town well and initially i did i Shaun of the dead was the first one that occurred to me but i'm like well uh, that's that's more of kind of an intimate character study because i mean it's he's fighting against zombies which right uh you know we can we can analyze and, and be snooty cinephiles about that all day but i think in Shaun of the Dead it really is just like no these are these are zombies he's fighting against which, which is delightful right and, and and you get to the end of that and it's and it's more like uh, a system that seems to be easily conquered you know but <laughs> I, I i i i think i feel like nick angel in hot fuzz had to work a lot harder than Shaun. like it just feels almost like happenstance that Sean survives in Shaun of the Dead. <laughs> That's a very good point. There, there is sort of a, a duet mocking a moment at the end of that, of course. Yeah. Uh, um, all right. So now we're getting to the the meat of this episode, Gavin. We're going to get to the recommendation. So excellent. Uh, um, all right. So once again, um, to listeners, new, old, everywhere in between. Um, We'll, I'll kind of touch upon availability for some of these, but I'll get into more details uh, uh, where you can find them in the individual episodes. Uh, and also, uh, guests always kind of like to do their own thing in regards to in which order they recommend them. Sometimes there's significance, sometimes there isn't. So we're just going to get into it. And Gavin, what is your first recommendation for me? So I am, I am actually going to go um, chronological, just because I think it's interesting to watch how the films change over the few years mm-hmm. that they... Uh, but uh, I mean, genuinely, one hundred percent. These are short films. If you can find some way to see Whiskey Galore, please seek it out. Uh, but I can't. I can't recommend that to you because it is mostly unavailable outside of buying a physical DVD. Sure. Um, but I'm sure you know the Ealing doesn't isn't gonna isn't exactly looking for your money. So if you find some way to. Um, but my first uh, recommendation is from 1949. Kind Hearts and Coronets. Um, It is a a film loosely based on the novel Israel Rank, the autobiography of a criminal. Um, And it is directed by Robert Hamer, um, who, you know, really became uh, famous basically through his work um, in Ealing. And he is the director of It Always Rains on Sunday. So he he brings that, you know, kitchen sink... um, uh, aspect to this, uh, but I really feel like Kind Hearts and Coronets ends up being his his most famous film. Um, and Kind Hearts and Coronets is dark; it's very very dark. Um, <laughs> uh, and but also very fun and silly. So I it's set in Edwardian England, uh, which is uh, you know more towards. Uh, Sorry, I clicked the wrong thing. Uh, it's, you know, 
early 1900s mm-hmm. uh and and some of it you could say is end of 1800s but it's mostly early 1900s and what it what's great is it's it's the story of this boy uh, you know the it begins in flashback and he uh ends up being born to uh his mother who is the seventh uh she's the daughter of the seventh duke of Chalfont. Mm-hmm. But she's been disowned by her family because she's married beneath her. She married an opera singer who dies shortly after uh, Louis is born. Louis is the son. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, she raises him in in poverty. But she does often tell him that the, you know, one of the interesting things about their, their you know, their aristocratic legacy is um, unlike other dukedoms, uh, theirs can be passed through the mother. Mm. Which means that Lewis has an opportunity to become a duke. And the only way he can do this after his mother dies um, is in an act of revenge. He decides to kill the eight <laughs> remaining Discoins for the dukedom. And so <laughs> the Discoin family is the family that disowned his mother. And what's great is um, they are all played by Alec Guinness. Every <laughs> single discoin member family member it, it's eight different characters it's funny because they sent him the script uh, he said he started laughing from the first page and they were like well we want you to play four of these characters and he was like that's ridiculous i should play eight um <laughs> and, and so he does he plays he plays every um potential victim of of this uh uh young man who is upset and hurt at this aristotic this aristocratic system that kept him down his whole life and he believes in killing these people he will get the thing that he most desires which is to become part of the system that kept him down his entire life um <laughs> and on top of that there's uh you know there's an interesting love story that's in it there is um a very um beautiful joan greenwood who plays um she is sensual and sexy and she's basically sort of uh controlling louis uh, mazzini uh by using her feminine wiles uh <laughs> during the film she what's great about joan greenwood is she has this very deep voice and and it is it's really interesting to watch her seduce him and and she lays it on thick in the film so much so that once again when it came to america they had to tone down the the joan greenwood stuff because it was too sexy Uh and and the movie has a lot of interesting things to say not only about this this uh man's crazed fight to murder his family in order to rise in the ranks of society but also about the sexual politics of the time in a way that you don't get out of films that are from the 40s especially not films in america at the time sure yeah of course um, and, and just sort of clicking through, and, and that <laughs> you you already answered my my first question going to be like, oh, how come Alec Guinness is, is credited with eight parts here? Uh, I I fully understand that now. Um, yeah, it's, and he's really great in all of them, and some of them are shorter than others. And unfortunately, Lady Agatha Discoin uh, isn't in the film enough, if you ask me. <laughs> um and uh that's one of the female roles he plays it's it's also really funny there is one scene that contains six of the of the alec guinnesses um and 
that to shoot that they essentially it was a complicated process of masking the screen and then reprocessing the film and placing it over and they had to shoot it over three days and the, the cinematographer was so worried about getting it exactly right that he slept in the studio to make sure nobody moved the camera <laughs> that's pretty yeah. awesome um, it's, you know, it's really impressive too it looks great um and it's fun to hear that stuff that it, you know like the art of filmmaking was an actual art <laughs> um, mm-hmm. yeah well it, it's and this is becoming a trend now gavin because one of the films you recommended for me last time was the invisible man which also had its fair share of um uh, practical and, and quite impressive for the time visual effects which was wonderful um and just just kind of clicking through cast and crew and all this kind of stuff on on uh, kind arts and cornets the dp douglas slocomb um the dp for uh many things uh oscar nominations for a few different films but probably most relevant to or most familiar to many people uh the dp on the indiana jones trilogy oh yes um, yeah, yeah yeah for which he got an oscar nomination for raiders of the lost ark so that's that's interesting i wonder i wonder if uh if spielberg was a fan of ealing comedies when he was growing up i mean that that would be an interesting thing i do do i say something mean about spielberg here or do i just move on go I'll ahead just do it do it I know, I, is he interesting enough to know what the ealing comedies are anyways <laughs> um uh, and, and real quick, before we move on past this, I do want to give... Uh, I've, I've talked about the other people in the film. Dennis Price, who plays Louis Mazzini in the in the movie, is so good. And it's really... I think it's really an almost impossible feat because he also has to wear several disguises in this film, even though he's only playing one character, unlike Alec Guinness. Um I think it's a, a testament to his performance that he really shines when he's being placed against Alec Guinness, you know, doing his all in all of these roles. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, I mean, he gives a really memorable performance as well. And I, I think that often gets lost in the shuffle when people talk about kind arts and coronets. Mm-hmm. Um, they talk about Alec Guinness or, you know, some of them, like I do talk about Joan Greenwood as well. And, and Dennis Price doesn't get, mentioned far uh, fair enough if uh, if you ask me so right. very good um and kind of hearts and cornets uh seems like it is available for rental on amazon so that's probably where i'll be going to to check it out um all right gavin so we got that first one now uh and I, i'm glad you recommended that one if, if for no other reason then uh now i can provide a uh, filmic context for the the, the picture that is the cover profile on my Facebook page, which was one of the first things I grabbed when I just Google image searched Ealing Comedies. That's one of the ones that came up. And, I, uh, I think I think you'll really dig it. And, uh, uh, you know, it, it's, uh, I mean, it's probably the best of them. So maybe it's a little unfair that I gave it to you at the beginning. But I, I think it's better, I think, for the just giving you a, a broader context of how Ealing Comedies sort of progressed, it's better to start with an earlier one. Okay, well that means it's all downhill from here, so let's start the, <laughs> the downward spiral with your next recommendation, which is... Uh, from 1951, The Man in the White Suit. Okay. Which also stars Alec Guinness and Joan Greenwood, actually. Oh. Um, so this is Alexander McKendrick, who I, I mentioned eventually went on to do The Sweet Smell of Success. Um, and this is, a, this is a slight departure for a lot of the Ealing movies, because it is, in a way, a... a slight uh science fiction film um so um 
Al Guinness plays um, Sidney Stratton, and he's a, he's like a brilliant young chemist, and um, nobody will hire him because he he keeps making these crazy demands about uh, facilities uh, so he can create an everlasting um, fiber, essentially. Mm-hmm. And um, he eventually gets a job as a janitor uh, in in a laboratory and starts setting up his experiments at night. And um, and he does. He, he eventually makes a fabric that is uh, a brilliant white. It's a bright and, it, and it, it's shown sort of luminous because it contains radioactive elements and it's uh, it's incapable of being dyed and it doesn't get dirty and it doesn't fall apart. <laughs> and uh, and everybody's like, oh, this man's a genius until, you know, big business realizes that if everybody has a suit like this, <laughs> no one will buy more suits. Mm-hmm. And the working class realize that if everybody has a suit like this or everybody has this fabric, then no one will pay them to make them more because <laughs> they have this indestructible. So it's actually kind of interesting politically because that movie, it becomes everyone's out to get this one person, but it's, but it's an interesting topic because it, it deals with the idea of like, he could bring about, you know, sort of a, a utopian, um, you know, there would be no need for people to spend money on clothes anymore. It'd be a huge um, part of everybody's budget that, mm-hmm. you know, and and it would end this sort of greed for that. It would end, you know, it might end fashion and, and that sort of part of life. And it's this interesting, you know, what happens when you drop this flaw into this, this plan that we think is society and, and would people accept that change or would it then become, you know, a boon for them that, that that they were like we need to destroy this thing and i don't want to tell you what happens from there but mm-hmm. i i gotta tell you his performance especially there's a very famous scene when he first puts on the suit and he steps in front of a three-paneled mirror and all you see is just rows and rows of Alec Guinness, and he does this brief little dance in front of it and it doesn't <laughs> last long but it's beautiful. It's like this beautiful moment and he looks great. He's young and his suit is glowing. And I don't know. It's just that it, to me, it's one of the most fun of the Ealing comedies. Mm. Um, Cause he feels like he's having fun. Mm-hmm. That's good. And, and I don't know if he'll, if he'll show up in the next one, but this is at least of these recommendations, the first appearance of Michael Goff in a, in yes, a healing right. comedy that you're recommending, um, which I, I think the earliest I've seen, uh, Michael Goff in a film was top secret, which is what, like 1974, 75. So this will be with future Batman Val Kilmer. Yes, uh, that's, that's true. Um, and, and so this will be the, the youngest I'll ever have seen Michael Goff being, um, may he rest in peace. So, um, <laughs> the um, one last thing uh, that I want to bring up about about the movie itself, uh, they created this sound effect for um, uh, Sidney Stratton's apparatus, um, and it w- was created uh, in, as a collaboration between director Alexander McKendrick and sound editor Mary Haberfield, and it's uh, it's like a bubbling sound, and it's it's really fun, and it's sort of incorporated into the score, but it actually ended up becoming a, a big hit because what they did is they uh, released it. Um, with uh, a musician picked it up and, and made a man in the white suit samba, and uh, <laughs> and it's one of 
but what makes it even more interesting is that record that had it on it is one of the very first or earliest at least records produced by george martin who would go on to produce the beatles oh interesting yeah Huh. cool um that's a fun little tri- that's a fun little trivia tidbit you got there, Gavin. Um, th- this is it's it's also interesting because looking at uh, the IMDb page for uh, my my emphasis on that one was weird. The IMDb page for there we go for um, for this film. Uh, so it, it's it's credited as 1951 and yet was nominated for a bunch of a well for a Academy Award for Best Writing in 1953, which means it wasn't released in the United States until 1952. Uh, which is interesting oh, that, to me. That is really interesting. Um, and and, and on, on its awards page, a bunch of other stuff, including the BAFTAs, it's, it says 1952, so that's interesting. Um, and then also, uh, funnily enough, uh, with uh, getting back to synchronicity of everything, in that same year that this was nominated for Best uh, Writing, Alec Guinness was also nominated for Best Actor for The Lavender Hill Mob. Yeah. I mean, because he was he was basically, you know, uh, their go to guy when they you know when they wanted someone to to play, you know, their lead character. And if you were to look at his character in the Lavender Hill Mob, he is so different than than the person he plays, uh, like to an uncanny extent, uh, to the person that he plays in the man in the white suit. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know. It's really fascinating. He is quite the talent, I will say. Hmm. And it's it's so funny because I keep seeing Joan Greenwood's name everywhere, and and I keep I keep my mind keeps changing it to Johnny Greenwood, and <laughs> I think it's just because I recently saw Suspiria and Tom York did the score for it, so I I keep my my brain is apparently on Radiohead for some reason, which is not often the case to be honest with you. So I will say I do love Joan Greenwood's score to There Will Be Blood. <laughs> She's very talented. <laughs> Um, it's just her like talking real throatily into a microphone. Yes, exactly. Um, w- w- but uh, with EDM music added in the background, <laughs> of, of course. Now, before we we move on, I, I know you, you you just made the joke about Spielberg, which was I, I I thought it was a fun one. But um, Spielberg's colleague George Lucas cast Alec Guinness obviously later on in Star Wars, and that was for many of us growing up like our first exposure to Alec Guinness. Do you know if if Lucas was a fan of these things? Because it seems kind of like I mean. Cool. I, I would 100% believe Lucas is a fan of healing comedies. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think he is the the perfect nerdy, neurotic type of American that would know <laughs> about this. Right. Whereas, once again, I don't think Spielberg is interesting enough to know about it. <laughs> you know what? That's not, that's not fair. I th- I'm sure Spielberg knew about the healing comedies. I don't know how much of an effect they've had on his career. But well, and, but yeah, but I one hundred percent believe Lucas was an Ealing fan. Yeah, and and not to say that Lucas was good at at comedy at all, but certainly oh, no. if, you, if yeah. you look at Spielberg's resume, his comedies were his least interesting ones. I I, I love Catch Me If You Can, but other than that, it's sort of like, yeah, all right, <laughs> um, all right. So we got one, we got two, Gavin. That means we need a third one to round this all out. So this was not originally one of my picks, but I made it a pick more for necessi- a necessity of availability. Mm-hmm. As I mentioned, once again, Whiskey Galore, really go check it out if you can. But <laughs> um, my third pick would be 1955's The Lady Killers, which okay. is a great movie. And I don't mean to make, make it sound uh, bad by by that manner, but I 
I I love those earlier Ealing movies so much. Uh, but The Lady Killers, like I said, my very first Ealing comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I feel like most people probably know the story of Lady Killers, probably from the remake more than anything. But um, uh, Katie Johnson um, plays Mrs. Wilberforce, who's this old woman who lives in this building, and she's she's bored and old and very into you know contacting the police to tell them about every little thing that she thinks is a crime (laughs) and she um she becomes she she gets approached by professor marcus who's played by alec guinness once again so he will be (laughs) appearing in all three of these films um and he's the slimy character and he wants to rent rent a bunch of rooms and he tells her that he you know the reason he's renting all these rooms are for his friends and they're they're part of a um uh, a musical group that <laughs> a, a string quartet mm-hmm. and um so they they have to carry all these uh you know musical instrument cases with them constantly and he moves these people into this house and she, you know she gets she gets a little concerned but they they're basically playing this heist and they basically trick her into picking up the money for them and then when <laughs> they try and leave the house she figures out what they've done because one of them gets their violin case caught in the door and it spills money everywhere. Mm-hmm. And they basically decide, well, you're now an accomplice to the crime. And when that doesn't stop her from seemingly wanting to tattle on them, they decide she has to die. <laughs> and, uh, okay. And, and so it, it gets a little nuts from there. Uh, what's great too is uh, Peter Sellers that's one of his very first films. Um, he's a member of the, of the gang as well. And he also provides the voice of, uh, I've lost her name already. Uh, he also provides the voice of Mrs. Wilberforce's parrot, which is a character in the film. Um, and it, I don't know. It's very funny and very absurd. And I can, I definitely understand the impulse to remake it. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, there's no remake real necessary for this film. It's 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 very funny. I I think what's what's interesting about if you if you want to fit it into that context of like the little person fighting the system, um, you have these criminals who are are stealing, but you also have this woman who really wants life, you know, this this boring life that she has to to exist inside the system. And it doesn't ever want to help her out. When she, <laughs> not to tell you too much about the movie, but when she, you know, has this money at one point, she goes to the police and they won't believe her that <laughs> it came from a crime. Uh, because, as I mentioned before, she's the woman who's cried wolf. Mm-hmm. And so this, this woman who doesn't really, really want to break the law is is forced to become this, this lawbreaker because she can't you know she she's so she's such an anomaly to the system that it, it refuses to even acknowledge her and and i think that's kind of interesting that that there's this sort of outlier in their canon that is actually one of their more famous films that you know doesn't fully fit their pattern but perhaps fits their pattern more than than anybody would like to really think about it mm-hmm. um I do think that there are members of society, members of, of um, you know, poverty stricken people, elderly people that we often don't think about that, you know, and, and that's why, 
you know, this professor's also attracted to her home is he thinks, you know, this is a boring old woman that nobody pays attention to. It's the perfect place to hide. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think, you know, a, a political way of thinking about that is really what drives her character and her motivations. Mm-hmm. Now, in the updated version, uh, do you think Tom Hanks holds his own as the professor character? Or is it just, the, I mean, the whole film is kind of like, eh, it's just missing something that this original one had. I, I will say I I genuinely don't hate what Tom Hanks is doing. He had never seen the original until hmm. after they made the movie because he didn't want to be influenced by Alec Guinness's performance. And what's really funny is Alec Guinness wasn't the initial um, uh, choice for this role. It was Alistair Sim. And when he couldn't take the role, they gave it to Alec Guinness and he based his entire performance on Alistair Sim. <laughs> um, <laughs> And and I love that I love that little tidbit because it's just like oh like in in a way it's Alec Guinness's tribute to somebody who he took the job of, um, <laughs> and uh, but I do I I will say if you have to if you had to ask me you know what's one of the more enjoyable things about the remake um, I enjoy the the woman who plays the Mrs Wilberforce character I I believe her name's different in the remake um, I I think she's good I think they wrote her in a very weird way that doesn't it's not quite what this film was going for and i think tom hanks is like his eccentricity is is the way to sort of play that but also you know everything else doesn't feel right so he feels wrong as well but i i like the mm-hmm. fact that he tried mm-hmm. it's a very non-tom hanksy performance and that's one of those things that people you know People have a tendency when talking about Tom Hanks to be like, yeah, he's really good at playing himself, except for when, you know, he's being Forrest Gump. And uh, <laughs> and, and so, like, I don't know, it's it's interesting to see him go out on a limb and try something different than, than it would be to have him play, you know, the guy from Castaway one more time or, or the character he plays in Philadelphia one more time, you know? Well, well, Gavin, he did try something different in Steven Spielberg's comedy, the terminal. <laughs> uh, that movie made me wish I had a terminal illness. Hey, Oh, man. <laughs> oh, jeez. Um, that movie. <laughs> um, I was going to say something, but I forgot what it was. Oh, um, once again, synchronicity here. Um, you mentioned Alistair Sim, who uh, I, I I covered uh, Alistair Sim's um, rendition, not his rendition, but the the, the version of the, of a Christmas Carol that he was in, and he's fantastic in that as Edward yeah. Scrooge. Um, he's, a, he's a really great actor, and it, I mean, it. I I don't think Lady Killers would have been a worse film with him by any means, but I do think we're sort of blessed that we got this sort of wacky uh alistair sim based alec guinness performance (laughs) that is interesting um and according to um imdb um 28 years after this film debuted in belgium i was born really yeah february 24th 1956 in belgium uh this film premiered i don't know about the united states i'm not interested in that gavin i'm only interested in belgium (laughs) at this point of course um well, these these all sound these all sound delightful, and I, I have to say, and I'm not just saying this because you're here, Gavin. I'm trying to butter you up. Um, a, a lot of times on these introductory episodes, it's sort of like, oh, well, I know there's one I'm particularly looking for, and I'm very curious. But all these sound absolutely delightful, and I'm excited for all of them, to be honest with you. 
And and you know what's great about them, and this is this is not a slight to other longer films. There's some great, really long films. They're all breezy, you know. Like the, mm. I think the longest one is Lady Killers. It's about an hour and a half, um, but the rest of them are about eighty minutes. And it, it's I I they pack so much into those eighty minutes. Uh, it's it's really great. I don't know. I think I think you're gonna have a lot of fun with these, and I I hope you I hope you genuinely enjoy them. I, I I hope so too. Um, and yeah, there 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 is something to be said about a movie that kind of gets in, gets the job done, uh, and gets out. Um, once again, tying back to Suspiria, which is uh, two and a half hours long, and I don't yeah. think needs to. Be. <laughs> I keep seeing that and keep going, why? Uh, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it was it was a very mixed bag. I, I went to go see it. Uh, well, as of this recording last night, um, there was four of us, and our responses ranged from um, pretty sure someone hated it to absolutely loved it, and sort of everywhere in between. Um, I'll let you guess as to which one I was. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> So, okay, so as a recap, we have uh, Kind Hearts and Cornets. We have uh, The Man in the White Suit. Is it The Man in the White Suit? I've already forgotten the name yes. of it. Yep. The, man, the Man in the White Suit and The Lady Killers. Um, this is absolutely wonderful. And I forgot to mention this for The Man in the White Suit, but both it and The Lady Killers also seem like they are rentals on Amazon, among many other venues. But I, of course, once again, will get back to those in more detail in the individual episodes. If you are curious um, as to where you can pick up uh, a copy of Whiskey Galore, I did search on YouTube. Sometimes people really kind of put the full version up. It is unfortunately not available on YouTube. But if you want to buy a DVD copy from Amazon, Gavin, it'll only set you back by $50. <laughs> so, so seek it out. <laughs> yeah, and, and according to, once again, as of this recording, only three left in stock, so order soon. Um <laughs> It seems like there are plenty of copies of the 2016 remake available, though, if you're curious about that. So, all right. As I said, I am very delighted about this. And, Gavin, I am delighted once again that you are here. And if there are other people out there who are listening and saying they are delighted about Gavin as well, and they want to, like, I want to know more about Gavin and follow his work, where can they do that? Uh, well, I'm a, I'm a professional editor, so there's a chance you've probably seen my work. I've especially been working a lot this past year um, in both TV and commercials, so mm-hmm. I'm sure you've seen something of mine. Uh, but uh, if you want to find me online, you can find me on Twitter at @friendlessmean, which is how I plan on dying someday, both friendless and mean. <laughs> um, and uh, it's going to make it easy on everybody, really. And... Um, and you can listen to me every two weeks on the Mixed Reviews. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at, at the Mixed Reviews. Uh, you can email us at reviewsmixed at gmail.com. And you can subscribe to the Mixed Reviews on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, iHeartMedia, uh, Google Play Music, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, and like I said, we're a really fun film podcast. Uh, and we talk about a lot of subjects <laughs> and yeah, some of them and, are mixed and listeners you absolutely should um i the gavin the first i don't know if i ever told you this the first episode i think i listened to yours uh was the guillermo del toro episode um, oh nice yeah and then um and i don't know there, there's a weird genre thing because then the last episode i listened to was the one they put out for halloween this year of uh dracula which was or, or va- was a vampire movie. It was vampires. Yeah, yeah, yeah. vampire movie specifically. I but I remember because I texted you uh, about your finally someone else who who enjoys Bram Stoker's Dracula as much as I did. So that's oh my why. god, it's so good. It's um, so good. 
real quick, it's it's funny because I knew how much you had hated um, Crimson Peak for a long time, and I know mm-hmm. you've reassessed that mm-hmm. in, in the more recent, you know, through your podcast. Uh, we talked about Crimson Peak in the Guillermo del Toro episode, but also we don't want the episodes to be two hours, so it landed on the cutting room floor. But uh, I am an unabashed fan of that film, so I'm I'm happy you were able to reassess it. Yeah, I you know I'm happy that that Sean recommended to me that I yeah it, it was I don't know what me of three years ago was thinking that it's a it's a wonderful movie. I, I mean it was it was also sold really incorrectly. It was sold yeah. as this you know jump a minute haunted house film when really it's this gothic romance that's more more it's it's closer to jane Eyre than it is you know mm, uh, yeah. uh something like poltergeist and yep uh, no that's a that's a, a very and, and i think also at the time i was upset that he was using cgi ghosts when like oh yeah practical which, stuff was but yeah you know uh, which he does I, like the, the what makes me even angrier about that is those are actors they're just cgi <laughs> yeah, enhanced yeah, and no. it makes them look so bad but anyways <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but that, that's neither here nor there but yeah certainly go check out the mix reviews it, it is a it's a it's an absolutely wonderful podcast um both of you you guys are, are absolutely delightful to listen to i must say but um Aww, thank you shucks <laughs> and, and of course it is easy to get in touch with me you can email me at you do movies badly at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Nolan Fixes Teeth. Uh, you can catch up on back episodes of the show on BattleshipRetention.com. If you go to the podcast drop down menu and click on I do movies badly, it's also there where you can t- uh, chime in on the in the comments field and disagree with Gavin, as one of my regular listeners <laughs> enjoys doing. <laughs> oh, he's um, gonna hate this analysis of Ealing Film. <laughs> but you know what? I think I have history on my side, so yeah, you very well might. Um, and of course, I do movies badly. Podbean. Com, and you can download my stuff on iTunes, <clears throat> um, wherever you kind of get your podcast. Pod being where you know to be honest with you i have not actually explored where you can find <clears throat> where you can find my my podcast but i know it's on itunes it's definitely there so why not just go there so uh well that was our discussion of ealing comedies uh i hope that you listeners had as much uh, of a fun time um listening as i enjoyed having a conversation with gavin because conversations with gavin are always wonderful of course so um yeah, Gavin, thank you for joining me for um, for a third time here on I Do Movies Badly. Oh, do I get like a, a members only jacket or something? Yeah, it's a uh, it's in the mail. It'll be it'll be there between sometime between next week and when you die, friendless and alone. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> so, uh, listeners, be sure to tune in next week where I'll be talking about Kind Hearts and Cornet. Oh, actually, oh no, that's that reminds me. So. This episode uh, is obviously being recorded a little bit, uh, recorded and published a little bit later in the month than I am typically used to. That just was a byproduct of Gavin and I trying to sync up schedules. So this episode, um, uh, I believe, if you're listening to it, uh, it might be on a Tuesday because it's going up on a Monday. In order to kind of work with the compressed uh, calendar of November that I have. It'll actually be this week, so later on this week that you're listening to this will be uh, the episode for Kind Hearts and Coronets, and then it'll be back to a regularly scheduled program the following two, the following two weeks. So be sure to tune in this week, where I'll be talking about Kind Hearts and Coronets, and hopefully I'll be just a little bit less ignorant and more on time.
This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.